Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening. Special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for helping making this podcast possible. If you have a creative endeavor and you want to see how the library can help, visit cpl.org. Again, that is cpl.org. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And when you do that, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting service. We're on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, just about anywhere you can find them. And when you rate and review us, it helps other people find this show. And as always, if you have any feedback, be sure and send it my way. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. We actually got a little bit of feedback this week, so a, qu- a quick apology for our uh, our technical difficulties Oops. with the Keith Faber episode. But thank you to everybody who reached out and let us know. We, uh, we tried to get that fixed as quickly as possible. This week on Ohio Matters, drumroll. Former Ohio Governor Ted Strickland, or first governor, Andrew, this is the first one who I believe is, unless I'm missing someone. No, that was that was it. That was a big moment. Yeah. I mean, we we're trying to get the current governor on. He, if, he keeps ignoring li- I'm sure he's listening. Yeah, um, but. I'm, I'm sure he listens to everything that we do, but he, uh, he keeps ignoring us, so we decided to go with his predecessor. Uh, Ted Strickland came on the show and uh, really was uh, one of the more fascinating conversations we've had, I think. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think we wanted to have him on was because we've had a lot of people on this show and everybody kind of has this, uh, you know, everybody looks at politics through like a recency filter in a way. So they point to like Ted Strickland and the 2016 Senate race and, uh, you know, him losing to Kasich and all that. And he, he's taken quite a bit of criticism on this show. I think that's pretty safe to say, but he was here and, uh, you know, helped really put a lot of the last really like 25 years of politics in Ohio kind of into some kind of perspective, you know, had a really sort of fascinating discussion about his backstory, which I'm sure some people have heard, but it's still interesting nonetheless. I think you you will hear about the chicken shack. Don't worry, we we did talk about that. But it was also just interesting getting into it with him about where he's at now and kind of uh, look back. Everybody's got the, you know, 2020 hindsight. He's the only Democrat to be a governor in Ohio, basically in my adult life. And I think that for that reason, there's a lot of this like symbolic stuff that gets wrapped up in him. So there's sort of like the um, the appreciation they have for the fact they had it. There's a disappointment that they didn't keep it. You know, he was governor during the Great Recession. And so he got this giant crap sandwich kind of dropped into his lap. But then also, I don't think it helped him that when he ran for uh, the Senate last year or two years ago now, he got beat by Rob Portman by something like 25 to 30 points in a race that kind of people had spotlighted as maybe one of the big races to watch across the country. So I, I think that there's this big, um, a lot of baggage that's associated with him. But the thing about him, and you always hear this, and it's kind of like faint praise, like, oh, but he's such a nice guy. But he is really been one of the nicest people that I've ever dealt with in politics. I mean, I remember going back to me being an intern out of college. I got him on the phone for a story I was doing. He's very friendly. Um, when, you know, I'd run into him, like, he's the kind of guy that calls you brother and, like, doesn't sound stupid when he says it. I mean, his background um, uh, is as a former psychologist, a former Methodist minister. He's got this real, like, salt-of-the-earth kind of quality. And e- even though he's older, um, he's got this experience of being kind of, like, rubbing elbows in the D.C. circuit for a long time now. He's still has a kind of like normal guy kind of approach to him. I mean, you know, not to get too long into this, but we gave him a ride to his next de- next destination afterwards. And little known fact about me, I've driven for Uber here or there, just mostly as like a human experiment kind of thing. I felt like he's one of the nicest Uber passengers I ever had. <laughs> I mean, he's like, tell me about your dad. Like, oh, that's so interesting, you know, and that kind of stuff. So I just, 
um, you know, a lot of history there, uh, a lot to unpack, but also, like I said, ultimately just like a very decent person. That's not to be, a, I guess, something not to overlook, you know, in this world that we live in. Yeah, someone I believe described him when we were sort of fishing around for questions, described him as the uh, the Jimmy Carter of Ohio, I believe is what it was. And, uh, you know, I was a little skeptical, like, oh, the Jimmy Carter, okay, whatever. Um, after we met him, yeah, totally fitting, 100% fits. Um, just to peel back the, uh, the veneer of this show a little bit, so the way that a lot of this scheduling usually works is we talk to a press person and then maybe we talk to another press person and then we have to find things that kind of work. I basically called Ted Strickland on his phone and said, hey, you want to come on the show? And he came on four days later. So he was probably the at least one of the easiest guests we've been able to book. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get to the interview that uh, we did with Ted Strickland. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be with you. So we should probably get this out of the way just in case at the top of the show. Um, people do love to speculate. Uh, are, are you planning on running for anything in the near future? <laughs> uh, no, but I am uh, trying to help some of my friends get elected, people that I believe in. Uh, Rich Cordray at the top of the list. So I guess that leads into the next question. What, what have you been up to since uh, um, you know 2016 and all that? Well, I've done several things. I did a... Um, uh, a stint at Ohio University. I, I went to Ohio University, didn't get paid, but they gave me a room in the dormitory. And I spent uh, a few months just working with various professors, talking to their classes and, and uh, having a good time there at Ohio U. And then uh, most recently, I uh, taught a course at the uh, Harvard School of Public Health in Boston. Um, and uh, that was a great experience. And um, I've done a little traveling, and uh, I, I'm doing a lot of campaigning for Rich Cordray. Uh, we want to go into your background a little bit as well. And do you think you, um, you'll be the only Ohio governor to grow up in a chicken shack? <laughs> uh, probably. Um, and, you know, I, I really didn't grow up in a chicken shack. I lived in a chicken shack mm. for a period of time before my family uh, took our barn and converted that into a house. Um, but that happened when I was uh, rather young, uh, and uh, our, our uh, home burned to the ground uh, late one night. And um, so my parents um, had no insurance and no money and a lot of kids, and so they decided to use our chicken shack, and that's where we slept. Um, and uh, we had a smokehouse down over the hill, and that's what Mom used as the kitchen where she cooked our food. And so we stayed there for a period of time. And uh, then um, my dad and my older brothers took our uh, barn and converted it into a house. And so I grew up in the, in the house that had formerly been a barn. So I want to preface this question by saying that my dad's United Methodist minister, and he might have his own sort of theories on this, but you were ordained as United Methodist minister before you later became a psychologist. So what would you say is the difference between the two jobs primarily? I think they're very uh, similar, as a matter of fact. In fact, uh, th throughout the course of my professional life, I have worked uh, as a child care administrator. I've been a, uh, been a minister. I've been a psychologist. I've been a congressman. I've been a governor. And I've been a teacher. And some people may say, well, Strickland can't hold a job. Um, but I see a common thread through all of those different uh, activities and responsibilities. And the common thread is service. 
um, doing things that uh, are helpful to people. Uh, and so uh, I think there's been a consistency in my professional life in terms of the motivation for, the, for, for those responsibilities and, and the kind of work that are involved. Um, I, I spent, as, as you may know, I spent, uh, once I became a psychologist, I spent several years working in community mental health. Um, and then I spent um, some 10 years, a little more than 10 years, working as a psychologist at Ohio's maximum security prison in Lucasville, working with inmates with very serious mental illnesses. Um, and then, you know, when I was a congressman, I, I felt like I was a servant of the people. And I became governor, and I continued to feel as if I, my responsibility was to serve people. And so there's been a there's been a, a consistency there, uh, I think, um, with with throughout the course of my life. So you mentioned uh, your time in Lucasville. So uh, for our listeners who might not know this, there is a famous riot that happened there in 1993. So do you remember where you were when that happened and kind of what your thoughts were as it unfolded? Yes, as a matter of fact, I lived just one mile from that prison. I could look out my front window at the prison. And I had uh, been elected to the House of Representatives um, uh, the preceding November and had just taken office in January of the year that the riot occurred. And the riot occurred on Easter Sunday. So I had only been a Congress uh, congressperson for uh, a few months. And my wife and I had gone to Kentucky that weekend to visit um, her family over the Easter holiday period. And when we were driving back to our home, we had to go right by the prison. And we saw the lights and, and um, all the cars, and I immediately called the warden and uh, found out what had happened. And uh, so we were, we were on Easter break from the Congress. So I was, I was on site there at the prison uh, throughout the course of that riot, I um, I uh, spent a lot of time in uh, a high school that had just been built but had never been occupied across the street from the prison, and that's where the families of the hostages um, uh, gathered. So I spent uh, a lot of time with those families. I spent a lot of time talking to the news media and... Um, and uh, in fact, um, uh, a reporter from Washington came to my office uh, during that riot and asked me what I thought was likely to happen. And that was before uh, Bobby Van Landingham, the, the young officer, had been murdered. And during that, that conversation with that news person, I said something to the effect that I thought there was danger for the uh, the. Uh, other inmates that were being held hostage by some inmates, but I thought there was even greater danger um, for to them than to the correctional officers because I felt the inmates knew that if they had harmed a correctional officer, they would be held to pay. And uh, the reporter, when he wrote up the story, he he used some shorthand and he said something to the effect that Strickland says he's concerned about the correctional officers, but he's even more concerned about the inmates. 
And um, so uh, when I stood for re-election the next time, my opponent used that quote and had a TV ad that uh, implied that I was that I was more concerned about inmates than the correctional officers. But as it turned out, uh, George Voinovich was the, the Republican governor, and Mike DeWine was the Republican uh, attorney general at the time. And following uh, that riot, I got uh, messages, written messages, from both Governor Voinovich and Attorney General Mike DeWine thanking me for the help I had been during that riot in, in, in the way I dealt with the media. And, um, and so I held on to those letters, and I was able to protect myself from this unfair attack by, by saying this is what the Republican Governor Voinovich said about my involvement during the riot, and this is what Republican Attorney General Mike DeWine said about my involvement during the riot. And I think it really saved me from being defeated by an, an attack that was very unfair and inaccurate. You know, your background is really fascinating, uh, your professional background, because most of the politicians we have who come on the show are either lawyers or businessmen. Um, but you're a psychologist by trade and also a, a minister. Uh, so what made you decide to go into politics? Well, you know, I was always interested in politics. Uh, I grew up in a large family in Appalachia. My dad was a steel worker. Three of my four brothers were cement masons. My oldest brother was a World War II veteran. Uh, and as it turned out, later on, I had, uh, I had uh, a niece who became a cement mason, a niece who became a union pipe fitter and a niece who became a union carpenter as well as many nephews who went into the building trades. So I'd always grown up a part of a working class pro-labor uh, pro, uh, family. And I grew up listening to my dad and my older uh, siblings talk about the, the Great Depression and how difficult that was and how uh, FDR had, had brought the country out of the Depression and Social Security had been created and, and um, so on. So I, I grew up with a, a strong interest in politics. Um, I uh, sort of came at a, 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 of age uh, at a time when the civil rights movement was, uh, was very prominent. Um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, the civil rights marches and so on. The Vietnam War was going on and had a profound effect on my thinking. Um, and uh, so these, uh, you know, the Watergate uh, period occurred. And it, it just um, created an intense interest uh, in, in politics. And I decided that I was going to run for office. And I didn't know anything about running for office. I didn't know any political persons. I had no personal money. And I ran for Congress three times while I was a graduate student, and I lost three times. Uh, I ran in 76 and lost, in 78 and lost, and I ran in 1980 and lost. And uh, someone ha has said that if at first you don't succeed, you try and try again and then give up. There's no sense being a damn fool about it. 
So I thought I would never be in politics, so I, uh, I finished my Ph.D. I did my postdoc internship. I uh, took the exam and became a licensed psychologist and started working in community mental health, working at the prison, uh, and teaching at Shawnee State University. And um, then in, uh, in 1992, I decided I'm going to try this again. And so I won with 51% of the vote. And I went to Washington, and I worked really hard, and I tried to do the right thing. Uh, 94 came along, and it was a very difficult year for Democrats. And I lost with 49% of the vote. And so I decided to run again. And then in uh, um, 1996, I won with 51% of the vote. <laughs> and uh, then I solidified my standing um, within the congressional district. And the last time I ran for Congress, I didn't have an opponent. And um, then I decided to run for governor. So do you think government would be better served by having a wider diversity of professions in its ranks? Um, you know, I looked up some numbers. Uh, lawyers represent about 0.6% of the U.S. population, but made up 41% of the members of Congress in 2013. Um, do, you, do you think kind of diversifying out into different uh, professional areas would well, absolutely. help government? Uh, I, I mean, uh, Congress should reflect the country. Um, and that means there should be gender uh, equity, there should be um, economic, um, uh, um, I, don't, I don't want to say uh, everyone needs to be poor or working class, but as it is now, most members of Congress are millionaires, many of them are multimillionaires, and uh, I think it's, it's, it's unfortunate because um, one of the things I did a, a couple of years ago was to take what, what we called at that time the minimum wage challenge. Uh, I was living in Washington at the time, and the minimum wage challenge was uh, trying to live on the minimum wage for a week. And um, so I decided to try that, and I ate a lot of uh, bread and peanut butter sandwiches and bananas. They're pretty cheap. And, and I, I made it um, for five days. During that period of time, I found out that um, it's pretty tough to live like that. I was, I was going to Capitol Hill one morning to, to have a meeting with Senator Sherrod Brown, and I was running late, and I decided to flag a cab and then I realized I can't flag a cab. I, I can't pay for a cab. I'm living on the minimum wage. So I went running up Capitol Hill. It was a hot day, and when I got up there, I was sweating profusely and so on. Um, um, but on the fifth day, I got a call from one of my um, great nephews. And he was in the service. And he said, uh, Ted, I'm coming to Washington for three days of training before they send me to Afghanistan. And I decided to take, take my nephew out to dinner. And I was not able to do that and keep the minimum wage challenge. Now, I just I share, share that with you because um, 
I think most members of Congress never have to think about how much they pay for a meal, whether or not their kids are going to have access to health care, they can afford a good school for their children. Um, but a lot of Americans, just good, decent, ordinary folks, struggle. They struggle every day. Uh, if, if their car breaks down, they don't have the money to fix it. If, uh, if, uh, if one, someone in their family gets sick, they don't have health insurance, they're in deep trouble and so on. And so I do believe that our democracy would be um, healthier and more representative um, if there was greater diversity um, with, within the House and Senate. So as we talked about, you were the first Democrat elected to Ohio's 6th District in something like 35 years by the time you won. And you mentioned you lost the first three. Why do you think you won the fourth time? I kept at it. Um, I kept, uh, I developed friendships um, within the big sprawling district. Um, and uh, I uh, just worked really hard and uh, was able to convince people that I cared about them. And um, although it was a Republican district, um, I had the chance to, to win. And then as they got to know me, you know, as I said, the last time I ran for the House of Representatives, I didn't even have an opponent in the general election. Um, but it took a lot of work. Um, I don't know exactly how many People are in a congressional district now, I think it's roughly 700,000 or so. Um, there were almost that many in, in my congressional district. Uh, and it was a rural district, and there was a lot of poverty in my district. Um, uh, but I tried to identify with the people. If there were floods in, in my communities, I would go there, and I would spend sometimes two or three days myself you know, shoveling mud out of homes and so on. I did that not to be a, a show-off or a hot dog or to pretend that I was noble, but I did that because I wanted to identify with the people that I was representing and understand what life was like for them. I didn't take foreign trips when I was in the House of Representatives. A lot of times my colleagues would come to me and they say, oh, we're going to take this trip during vacation and we're going to go to four or five countries and you can take your wife with you and all that. I never took, I never took a one of those trips um, uh, while I was in the House of Representatives because I had a poor, sprawling congressional district and I tried to spend all of my time and all of my energies serving the people that elected me. And, um, and I think that's why I was able to win in a Republican region of the state. One person who you served with uh, during your time in Congress was uh, John Kasich. And uh, we were just kind of wondering, what uh, was John Kasich like when he was in Congress? Um, you know, I say this not to be uh, pejorative toward uh, uh, Governor Kasich, but he was sort of a hot dog. Uh, he, he was... Um, he was he was very um, uh, sure of himself, um, and um, I, re I remember we were on a plane together once, and he came up and he he leaned over and he said um, he said uh, 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 Ted, uh, you know, uh, my party thinks that um, 
they own that congressional seat that you occupy. Um, uh, but our relationship was not a negative one. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, I had, and I still have, even to this day, some affection for, for, for John Kasich. Uh, I don't agree with him on many, many things. I applauded his decision to expand Medicaid. Uh, I think that was only possible, though, because of Obamacare. Uh, so it was really a, a, a Barack Obama uh, initiative that made the expansion of Medicaid in Ohio possible that now provides health care coverage to about 700,000 Ohioans who, before the expansion of Medicaid, were not covered with health insurance. But I applaud John Kasich for doing that. There are other things that he has done that I strongly, strongly disapprove of. But our relationship was not bitter, um, uh, and it, even to this day, uh, I, I don't feel bitterness toward John Kasich, although he defeated me. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I, 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 as I said, I have some, some level of affection for him. Um, having been a governor, I know what that office is like and how difficult it can be. And um, I've become good friends with uh, former Governor Bob Taft, who, who preceded me. Uh, uh, Bob Taft and Hope Taft are wonderful people. They're Republicans. I disagree with them politically on a lot of issues, but they're very decent people. And as I said just recently at a public gathering, Bob and Hope Taft love the state of Ohio. They really do. And so you've got to, you know, you've, you've got to respect people that you may disagree with, but who are genuinely decent, caring people. You know, one of the votes that you and John Kasich both had while you were in Congress was on NAFTA, um, and Rob Portman for that matter. Um, John Kasich and Rob Portman both voted for it. You voted against it. Um, so what do you make of this kind of, of the Republican Party's sort of shifting orthodoxy on trade? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because I did oppose NAFTA, and I opposed allowing China to become a part of the World Trade Organization. I think those were the correct decisions when I made them. Um, I, I think the situation has changed somewhat. Uh, globalization is a fact of life, uh, and um, uh, it, it is uh, uh, somewhat puzzling to me that the Republican Party, that has always been a free trade party, has been so willing to, uh, to accept uh, um, what, the, what the President Trump is doing with these tariffs. Um, I'm puzzled by the fact that the president has not only chosen to impose tariffs on China, um, which I think uh, probably is justified, um, but the fact that he has chosen to uh, impose tariffs on uh, Canada and uh, the, the European Union and, and our partners, um, our allies, and I think that is hugely unwise, especially since um, uh, since we actually uh, sell more products to Canada than they sell to us. Uh, so I, I, I think it's uh, I, th I think it's puzzling. I'm not sure exactly what's happened to the Republican Party in a lot of ways. 
uh, I think they have, um, I could say they've gone to the dark side uh, and they seem to be willing to compromise their long-held principles. Um, maybe it's because they're afraid of President Trump. Um, I'm just not sure what's happened to them. Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for State House happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So Ted Strickland came into statewide office during kind of a a pretty transitional time in United States politics, and I think, you know, it's no different from Ohio or anything like that. Came in during the 20, uh, 2006 election, rather. And, um, you know, we, you really talked about that a lot with him, and I think he had some just fascinating stories from and fascinating insight on, you know, it seems like it was ages ago, but it was really only about 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, thinking back to that era, the sort of Great Recession time, I mean, I remember covering... Uh, I think it was the 2008 election um, and people legitimately thought the American economy financial system was just going to totally collapse. You know, there's Bear Stearns. There was, you know, the whole mortgage backed security thing. That, uh, and so uh, Ted Strickland ran for office as somebody, you know, kind of a traditional Democrat who wants to increase spending on infrastructure and education. It's kind of mom and apple pie sort of stuff for them. And he ended up having to cut hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it was, you know, from his budgets. He was just consistently dealing with kind of like a crisis. And so I think like thinking back to it, you really have to ask yourself, uh, you know, how much of it was was him to blame? And and so there is this kind of thing that's emerged about him that they feel that maybe he was indecisive or, uh, you know, didn't keep good counsel or something like that. Um, so we didn't press him too hard. We did ask him about all the important stuff. And you can kind of hear that he is a little defensive about his record. And I think a big part of that, too, is that in 2016, like we said earlier, he's going into that race thinking that he's going to be this top tier candidate. But the uh, opposition basically defined him like, hey, do you guys remember when Ted Strickland was governor? We lost hundreds of thousands of jobs like and uh, it just really stuck. And so that's um, he's just in the epicenter of a lot of stuff. And, you know, obviously he um, is somebody who's interested in kind of getting out his own story about it. Yeah, you can tell that it, it definitely affected him. And I think it is sort of an unfair criticism of uh, Governor Strickland. You always hear like, oh, when Ted Strickland was governor, we lost 300,000 jobs. It's like, well, yeah, everywhere lost 300,000 jobs. It was the worst financial meltdown since the Great Depression. I'd love to see the state that actually grew jobs during that time because that guy should be king of America forever, I guess, basically. Um, one of the things that I noticed, though, is he also gets the this rap for being um, kind of an old guy who was hanging on and whatnot. And, uh, you know, we've we've got several of those in the state. And uh, but the thing I noticed about him is he's still very feisty, like very eager. Like he said, very defensive. He's eager to defend himself and defend his legacy. And, uh, you know, he definitely sees it through his own lens. And I think a lot of that will come through during this segment. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and get back to the interview with Ted Strickland. So we want to talk to you a little bit about your tenure as governor. Uh, so I guess just first off, what do you remember about the 2006 campaign in, in which you ran and won? 
it was a it was a it was an exciting time, um, and, um, and and it was a wonderful experience. I traveled the state. I tried to make it a 88 county campaign. I tried to uh, uh, cover as much of the state as I could and not neglect any area of the state. And um, uh, you know, we, we, we had a theme. Uh, we had a, a theme, a uh, turnaround Ohio theme. I laid out in great detail uh, the plans that I hoped to accomplish if I were governor regarding everything from education to the environment to uh, the deployment of uh, broadband uh, broadband technology uh, th throughout the state. Um, and then I became governor, and uh, my first budget, although the House and Senate were contr was controlled by Republicans. My first budget passed with only one dissenting vote. Um, uh, and I think that was possible because every week I sat in my office with the Republican Speaker of the House. Was that John Husted at the time? John Husted yeah. and uh, the leader of the Senate, Senator Harris. And uh, we sat around a, a, a big round table. And I always had a, a round table in my congressional and in the governor's office because there's no head uh, when you have a round table. Every position is equal to every other position. And uh, every week uh, during the legislative sessions, we would meet and talk about the issues and argue and debate and disagree and compromise. And... Uh, and we were able to do some things, uh, and then the recession hit us, hit the country, hit the world, literally, but especially the country with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, where John Kasich worked, as a matter of fact. Uh, Lehman Brothers and other uh, banking interests and hedge fund managers acted terribly irresponsibly and brought on the greatest recession since the Great Depression. Um, but in spite of that, I'm really proud of the accomplishments that we were able to achieve. You know, uh, for years, the Ohio Supreme Court, on multiple occasions, had said that we had a system of funding our schools that was unconstitutional. And that was unconstitutional in large part because the state was not uh, accepting its share of the responsibility. And we passed education reform that I think gave Ohio a constitutional structure of school funding. Unfortunately, John Kasich, when he became governor, did away with that reform. We passed uh, an energy bill that gave Ohio a, a strong renewable standard for renewable energy and put Ohio on the pathway toward developing wind power and solar power and, and hydropower and other renewable forms of energy. Unfortunately, the Republican legislature put that on hold for two years and then really diminished its effectiveness. But we still have, we still have a standard in place, which I'm proud of. Um, we, um, we kept faith with local governments. You know, in Ohio today, so many communities, large and small, are struggling, having to raise taxes to support their schools and, and police and fire and so on. And one of the reasons for that is we used to have what was called a local government fund. The state partnered with local governments and provided resources for local governments. And even in the middle of the recession, 
I kept faith with local governments. And, um, and uh, when, when Governor Casey came in, he obliterated that, those resources for local governments. And local governments are struggling today um, in large part because the state uh, reneged on its um, commitment to provide these local funds. So even in the middle of a recession, I think, you know, we did some good things. And, um, and I think Ohio was even benefiting even today after, after my being out of office for eight years from some of the things that we did to get Ohio out of the recession back on the path toward recovery. So you ran on a platform of kind of education and infrastructure spending and stuff like that. But because of the financial crisis, you ended up having to pass budgets that cut hundreds of millions of dollars of state funding. You got into, I guess, um, it was contentious where people were talking about cuts to library funding or closing state hospitals. Um, there was the issue with video lottery terminals, quote unquote. Sure. Um, and so th these are all things that kind of were probably not the fights that you wanted to pick when you were elected. So how, how much of a role do you, th or what do you think about that now that you look yeah. back at it? Well, you know, when you're a governor, the, the buck stops at your desk. And uh, our state constitution requires Ohio to maintain a balanced budget. You don't have any, you don't have any choice. Uh, unlike at the federal level, you can engage in deficit spending. So when the recession hit us, that I had nothing to do with, quite frankly, it was a national recession, but I had to deal with the results of that recession. And every day I would go into my office and I would get the bad news less tax revenue coming in, and in order to keep the budget in balance, I had to make very tough decisions. I did my best to protect education, and I did protect education during that, and as I said, I kept faith with the local government funding, but I, I had to make cuts across the board, and a lot of the libraries were upset, um, but as, as, as I had indicated earlier, uh, Ohio provides high levels of funding for our libraries, and I expected our libraries to take a proportional cut. Mental health had to take a proportional cut. I was a psychologist. Did I, you know, did I take pleasure in that? No, it was gut-wrenching, but it had to be done. When you've only got so much money, and in a recession, the money is reduced and the needs are increased. People lose their jobs. There's greater uh, pressure on our social services and so on. To, so what I tried to do was to, was to protect essential services and to prepare Ohio for recovery. And when I left office, my last year in office, Ohio created more jobs than were created, I believe, in the first two years of the Kasich administration. Uh, and, and when I left office, um, education Week said that our education reform was the strongest, boldest education reform in America. And that decision was not my decision. That came from the Education Commission of the States, made up of all 50 states, who, who was chair, that was chaired at the time by a Republican governor. And Ohio won three years in a row while I was governor, the Governor's Cup for Economic Development. Um, and so even in the midst of the recession, I think we made wise decisions, necessary decisions, 
but wise decisions in order to keep the state from sliding deeper and deeper and deeper into uh, the economic recession. So there are a lot of kind of legacy issues in Ohio that span before your term as governor and then after. And so one of the issues that we've talked a lot about with people on this show actually is gerrymandering and the way that we draw congressional districts. So you obviously were governor for four years, but especially in 2008 where you had a Democrat as Speaker of the Ohio Mm -hmm. House and you as governor, there's potentially the opportunity to pass some kind of reform of that process, and it didn't happen. So It didn't happen. That's right. Uh, uh, Gerrymandering has been a problem for a long, long time. It has become increasingly uh, 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 an increasing problem in recent years because of technology. Um, It is now possible to use technology to draw districts so precisely that um, that you can almost uh, make it impossible for a challenger to win. And so although it's always been a problem, there was, there was a time when it was more balanced in Ohio. There was a time in Ohio when we had uh, roughly equivalent numbers of Republicans and Democrats uh, representing us in Congress. Um, and that's no longer true. Uh, and so it's it's a problem that I think is a threat to our democracy. And so why uh, was that not something that you were able to address when you were governor? Well, because uh, 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 for, uh, for the same reason, it's really difficult to address it now. Um, it, it's uh, the party in power sees an advantage. And they're unwilling to relinquish that advantage. And that's why uh, the ultimate answer... Uh, I think is the ballot, and taking it to the ballot and letting letting the people decide, um, rather than having that decision made by uh, by uh, partisan po- uh, politicians. And something else, uh, another kind of common thread in this show, and it kind of has to do with the election cycle here in Ohio. There's a lot of talk from Democrats about Republican oversight of the electronic classroom of tomorrow, ECOT, and Republicans kind of come back at that with, well. The Democrats had their own turn in charge, and so don't they share some responsibility or something along those lines? So what do you think about that? Well, thank you for that question, because in my very first State of the State address, roughly three months after I assumed office, and you can go back and read it, I called for a moratorium on these charter schools until we had put in place standards and accountability measures. So I, I have fought for-profit charter schools from the, from the day I assumed the governor's office till this very day. It is outrageous, it is immoral, that money is taken out of our public schools, which by the way, in my judgment, is the state's primary responsibility. The state's primary, the state government's primary responsibility is to provide uh, a quality education to our kids. And uh, some charter schools do, do good work. But the way charter schools were introduced and developed in Ohio is outrageous. And the for-profit motive is totally inappropriate. And there were no ca- accountability majors. So I'll, ta- I'll debate anyone when it comes to this particular issue because I have been strong and solid in my opposition to these 
schools, taking money out of our public schools, and enriching investors and managers. And do I uh, fault uh, John Kasich for that? Absolutely. Do I fault Mike DeWine for that? Absolutely. Uh, and uh, Yoast? Absolutely. Because they were complicit. They took money from these uh, operators. They turned a blind eye. And now, a few weeks before an election, they seem to have gotten religion. It's like a foxhole conversion. They are facing an election. They're going to be held accountable for their mismanagement of this education issue. And I think Ohioans are going to hold them responsible. But I am very proud of the fact that throughout my career, as a congressman and as a governor, I have supported public education and I have opposed public tax dollars being used for private education. So we're working our way up to the current election, but in 2010, obviously, you lost your bid for re-election. It was very close. Um, so uh, what did you think about that race? And, you know, you mentioned the Lehman Brothers thing, and that was obviously a big part of your messaging that year. But obviously, John Kasich was elected nonetheless. Yeah, he was. And I lost and I tried to accept that loss graciously. And I, I wished uh, uh, Governor Kasich well. Um, and uh, shortly thereafter, you, you may remember, uh, Senate Bill 5 uh, became an issue when they tried to to, to dismantle uh, uh, unions from the ability to form and organize and, and advocate for fair wages and safe working conditions. And I immediately got involved in that issue because I felt it was, it was a fundamental to what was important to working people. Uh, and uh, so I was very outspoken, um, although I had just recently lost the election. I felt like I had a responsibility as a former governor to speak out and to share my uh, views on that particular issue. Um, but um, I, I have not um, uh, carried bitter feelings toward John Kasich for defeating me. It was a close election, and um, uh, I, you know, I felt like he, you know, he beat me fair and square. I was always troubled that he wouldn't release his income tax returns. You know, um, President uh, Donald Trump gets a lot of criticism for not releasing his income tax returns, but John Kasich, to my knowledge, has never been willing to release his income tax returns, um, although he's, he's run for president, and I think he's running for president again. Um, but I, I always was a little suspicious that his involvement with Lehman Brothers was a little more um, important to him and to his economic um, uh, wealth th than he was willing to admit to the people of Ohio during that campaign for governor. And then we wanted to ask you, too, about the 2016 race where, uh, you know, you ran and lost against Rob Portman. Yes. And notably, you know, Donald Trump won Ohio by eight points, but Portman won by 19. So what do you think happened mm -hmm. that year? I think I think I had about $60 million spent against me by special interests, much of it coming from the Koch brothers. Um, uh, you know, when I first announced I was running for the Senate, I was leading in the polls, I think, by three points. Uh, I maintained a slight lead, or was it was even, uh, well through most of that campaign uh, until they had spent about $30 million against me. And it, it became very clear that they would have spent whatever they needed to spend to defeat me. They would have spent 
I believe 200 million if it was necessary to defeat me. Um, so I was the recipient of, of a lot of dark money um, that enabled uh, uh, Senator Portman to run a very positive campaign using his resources. But the dark money folks that came in um, uh, did, you know, did the hatchet job on me. And it was effective. Um, the National Rifle Association, there was a story around, I think, uh, July of that election year saying the National Rifle Association had spent more money to defeat me than they had spent in all other Senate races combined. It was um, kind of ironic because you, you touted your A-plus rating or whatever it was from the NRA for a while. Yeah, and, and, you know, and in my judgment, the NRA uh, uh, became increasingly extreme. Uh, and and radical, and I broke with them. I, I dropped my membership. I started speaking out uh, about the need to have background checks, and um, and, and the need to uh, keep people from having access to assault weapons. Uh, that people with uh, certain psychiatric conditions uh, should be deprived of having ac- easy access to guns, and. Um, and I'm not sorry I did that. I, 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 think, I, I think it was the right position to take. Um, I, I also spoke out against uh, what I perceived to be um, uh, too many uh, young people, largely male minorities, uh, losing their lives at the hands of law enforcement. And, um, and uh, I think that that, that cost me a lot of support as well. But I am not sorry I did it because I think it's an issue that's got to be discussed and dealt with. And um, so uh, I, you know, I lost. I lost badly. Uh, and uh, I'm not a senator, but I've got a clear conscience because uh, I said what I thought and what I believed. And, uh, and I think when you do that, you can sleep well at night. So despite Ted Strickland losing in 2016, um, he seemed very kind of at peace with it when we talked to him about it. He... Um, you know, he said he had a clear conscience about it and he got to finally kind of run the campaign he wanted to run, you know, forever, um, even though it wasn't successful. I mean, what, what did you kind of make of the, the, the state of mind of where the guy is now? Yeah, I think an example that he gave is that he wanted to speak out uh, as the issue of kind of like, quote unquote, community police relations, but really, um, you know, the shooting deaths of black men by police and sort of just all the racial tensions and, and socioeconomic tensions that exposes. That's an issue that he could have steered clear. I think that was a political loser for Democrats, you know, if you just kind of like tally it up. But he felt that it was important to speak out on it. And, you know, I think he sort of paid the price to some extent. I mean, I, I do think that ultimately his race was all about being a referendum on what it was like to live in Ohio from 2006 to 2010. But stuff like that kind of adds up too. I mean, you know, I remember... Um, I remember, too, that Strickland ended up coming out um, basically in favor of greater gun control. And this is a guy who ran uh, his political persona was I got an A from the NRA. He actually kind of got to the right of Republicans on guns, which is like, you know, sort of difficult to conceive of in this time that we live in right now. But, 
you know, somebody he came out in favor of gun control, and, and maybe it's kind of like Mark Dan, a guest that we've had on before, who got elected in the same, you know, kind of election, uh, who's come out and said things like, oh, I kind of felt like I had to, and I kind of felt bad about it, and sort of there's a reckoning. So, I mean, I don't want to put words in Strickland's mouth, but he did uh, uh, take some positions that maybe didn't help him too much politically, but like you said, I mean, I think he feels good about the race that he ran, and I imagine it's got to be discouraging to, like, run the race like from your heart and then lose by 30 points or whatever. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I'm, I, I guess that's, I don't know what that says, but nonetheless, I, I think that he feels like his conscience is clear. Well, the Mark Dan is actually a good example because, you know, Mark came on here and, you know, had all his woes in office and everything like that. And he basically said like, yeah, you know, it's like he didn't have to follow the constraints of political life or anything like that. He could actually kind of speak his heart. He didn't have to hedge whatever he said in front of whatever crowd or anything like that. And um, I don't know. I, I, I thought he seemed very happy and he had some, some good insight, not only on, I'm talking about Strickland now, had some good insight on uh, not only going forward in 2018, including a presidential endorsement. We're not going to spoil it in the banner. You got to listen all the way through. Um, he also talked about possibly the most important thing he did while he was governor. Inconsequential in retrospect. Yes, but still very important. Um, the 2010 hit single "Please Stay LeBron," where where he was featured. So alongside such luminaries as the guy from the Norton's Furniture commercial, and I think Big Chuck and Little John, and Dick Goddard. Uh, Dick Goddard. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, we, we talked about him as his brief time as a celebrity. Um, if you don't know, uh, I'm going to spoil it. Uh, LeBron did not stay that time. Um, unfortunately we can't discern if it was because of Strickland singing or not though. So that's open to interpretation with that. Let's go ahead and get to the rest of the interview with Ted Strickland. So one of the themes of this show when we have Democrats on is there's kind of like this soul searching going on with the Democratic Party in Ohio where they want to kind of know where, where things went wrong for them and how they can kind of get back out of the place where they're at. So a lot of, I guess, the problems uh, sort of because 2006 was such a good year for you guys and it kind of seems like it's kind of been downhill since then, you know, at least on the mm-hmm. state level. So what, what do you think went right during that period and where do you think maybe the party went wrong? Well, um, in 2006, there was scandal at the State House. You may remember the so-called Coingate scandal. Um, and I think people were, you know, were ready for a change. Uh, that's why I'm very hopeful that Rich Cordray will be the next governor, because we've got scandals at the, at the State House now. We've got the ECOT scandal. We've got a former speaker that's under FBI investigation. Um, we've got uh, members of the legislature that have had to resign or under a cloud of suspicion for inappropriate behaviors. And, um, and I think that bodes really well for, for Democrats uh, th- this year. Um, I, I cannot give you um, a definitive answer to what happened in 2016. Uh, with the presidential election. Uh, I think it was an aberration. Uh, I, don't think, I, I don't think that means that Ohio is no longer a swing state. I think Ohio is a swing state and will likely remain a swing state. I think we're probably a state that is a little, a little right of center under most circumstances. But I think the energy is on our side this year. Uh, I think Rich Cordray is a, a wonderfully qualified, uh, decent candidate, will be a great governor. And I think we've got uh, a strong ticket across the board. Uh, Kathleen Clyde for Secretary of State, 
Mr. Dettelbach for Attorney General, Zach Space for uh, Auditor, uh, Rob Richardson for Treasurer. I mean, we've got a, a really strong, strong ticket. And then there's, you know, Betty Sutton for um, Lieutenant Governor and Sherrod Brown for Senator. So I think we're going to have a good year in Ohio. Uh, I think there is some buyer's remorse uh, among the electorate. Uh, I think the fact that um, that women, especially here in Ohio, women and women's rights uh, ha have been under assault. Uh, Mike DeWine said in the debate just a few nights ago that he would sign the heartbeat bill. Uh, it is very possible that the Supreme Court, if, if Judge Kavanaugh or someone like him is put on the Supreme Court, that, that Roe v. Wade will be uh, curtailed or m perhaps totally overturned which means that those decisions would come back to the state. And if Mike DeWine was the governor, women are in trouble in Ohio because uh, I don't think he has any exceptions, even for rape or incest. If a woman becomes pregnant, even if she's raped or the victim of incest, to have access to an abortion, according to Mike DeWine. I think that's an extreme position, and I don't think Ohioans are extreme. I've, I've, always, I've always thought of Ohio and Ohioans as really common sense folk who shun extremes to either the left or the right, but, but just want competent, practical um, leadership. And I think that's what Rich Cordray will provide. So something that struck me while we were preparing for this interview was that you ran on a platform of kind of increasing educational funding and ended up having to cut a bunch of spending mm -hmm. because of the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And then John Kasich ran as this Tea Party conservative in 2010, and his biggest legacy is this massive expansion of Medicaid that's, you know, uh, obviously there's merits for it, but also it's very costly. So what do you think that says about politics, that that dynamic is there with you guys? Well, politics is a very dynamic uh, situation. It's, it's almost impossible to predict from month to month, certainly not from year to year, what circumstances you're going to face uh, as a political leader, um, but you've got to be prepared to deal with circumstances as they develop. And um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I had to do some uh, cutting education as a result of the recession, but what I did was give Ohio a structure of school funding that was constitutional. And if that structure had not been dismantled, Ohio today would have a system of school funding that was constitutional and there would be resources to fully fund it. Uh, and, and, and so what I tried to do was prepare Ohio for recovery. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't pretend the recession did not occur. It happened. And what I had to do was deal with it. And, and, and I tried to do that in a responsible manner, uh, in, a, in a manner that showed wisdom and in a manner that showed a concern for the future. And um, so uh, out of all the decisions that I had to make, I tried to protect education uh, first and foremost. And, um, and then John Kasich comes in, and uh, he continued to criticize Obamacare, um, decided to expand Medicaid, which I publicly applauded him for doing. I congratulated him for doing it. Um, but it was only possible because of Obamacare. If, if, you know, if, you, if you don't have Obamacare, you can't have Medicaid expansion. 
And um, yeah, I remember it, we would ask him about that in the state house press corps, and he would just ah, wave us off. But yeah, it, yeah, it was, it's it's uh, uh, so so he gets credit for something that Barack Obama made possible. And even today, by the way, during the first debate between Rich Cordray and, and Mike DeWine, at the end of that debate, before there was in, any opportunity for rebuttal, Mike DeWine said something that was really untrue. I think his last comment was saying to the people of Ohio, I have always supported insurance coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. That's not true. He joined a lawsuit that would have gotten rid of those protections. He's opposed to Obamacare. And, I, uh, and, 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 and so I think it's important to actually tell people the truth, even if they're going to disagree with you. I've, I've tried to do that through my professional career. Uh, I've, I, I've said things at time uh, times when I knew the listener was going to disagree with me. And, but I did it because I felt like I, I had a good reason. And um, I'm going to give you an example, just, just one example here. When I was, you know, we all get calls from people trying to sell us stuff, right, on our phones, and it's aggravating, and I get, I get sometimes several times a day. Yeah, I just don't answer anymore. But yeah. yeah. But when I was in the House of Representatives, there was a, a, a no-call bill, and you could, you know, you could get your name on a list and people couldn't call you. I voted against it. Why? Because I had several call centers in my district that were providing jobs for the people I represented. And, and I remember being in a parade after that vote and, and someone along the parade route called me over and was criticizing me for how I voted. And I tried to explain to them you may not like the vote, you may not like getting these calls, but the reason I did it is I was trying to save jobs for people that I'm representing. So you can't make all the people happy all the time. And sometimes you've got to take responsibility and your lumps for the decisions you make. But that's a part of leadership. And if you try to say what you think the person you're talking to immediately is what they want to hear, you're going to get yourself in trouble. What I tried to do was always share what I thought so that I didn't have to remember what I had said if it ever came up at a later time. I tried to be consistent. And I tried to make decisions that were consistent with my values. And I understand, you know, there are people who disagree with Ted Strickland and they think, you know, he's, he's off the rails when it comes to this issue or that issue or, you know, whatever. And I understand that. Um, but as long as you can live with yourself and the decisions you make, um, then that's about all you can do. So you've mentioned Mike DeWine a few times today, um, and you spent you had a pretty long career in politics, but he was there and then some before you. Um, but you know, f over the course of his career, he was uh, he voted for the assault weapons ban in the '90s and kind of got on the bad list for some of the gun rights groups mm -hmm. because of it. But now he's running this cycle sure. with endorsements from that group. So what do you think has been the secret with him and his kind of political resiliency, you know, that's allowed him to be as a fixture in Ohio politics for so long? Well, uh, 
he stays at it. Uh, and and uh, he, he's, a, he's a tough campaigner. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I, there have been times in the past when Mike DeWine and I have, have agreed. Um, when I was in the House of Representatives, having been a psychologist, uh, I um, decided that we needed uh, mental health courts because a lot of people, and I saw this when I was working in the prison, a lot of people in our jails and prisons are in there because they have psychiatric conditions. You know, they may urinate in public or they may criminally trespass or they may do, you know, some, some low-level offense um, and they find themselves caught up in the criminal justice system. And um, so I introduced legislation in the House of Representatives to, to establish a grant program so the communities could apply for grants to enable them to set up mental health courts similar to the drug courts so the people with psychiatric conditions could be dealt with by these specialized courts and I was over on the Senate side one day and Senator DeWine came up to me and he said I've been looking at your legislation he said I'm interested in that he saw he said I saw the problem when I was a county prosecutor and I said, Mike, it would, you know, it'd be, it would be really helpful if you would introduce a companion bill in the Senate. And he said, well, I, I don't know that I can do that, but I, but I, I will think about it. And he did. <laughs> he introduced a bill. In fact, he introduced a, a larger bill in the Senate, and he got it passed in the Senate. And I couldn't get it passed in the House. I was in the minority. And when you're in the minority in the House you're limited on what you can actually get done. And we were coming to the end of the session, and a, a, a Representative McAuliffe, who was running for the U.S. Senate in Florida, but was still chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the House, and Representative McAuliffe would not move my bill out of the committee. And we were coming to the end of the session. So I called Mike, Senator DeWine, and I said, Senator, do you know Representative McAuliffe? And he said, oh, yeah, well, I know him well. I served on the Judiciary Committee with him when I was in the House. And I said, Senator, he won't move my bill. You've got it passed in the, House, in the Senate, but if we don't get it passed in the House, it'll die. I said, do you think if I took my name off the bill and allowed Senator McAuliffe or uh, Representative McAuliffe to put his name on the bill, if I gave my bill to him, do you think he would move it out of committee? Senator DeWine said, I don't know, but I'll ask him. And he agreed. My name came off the bill. His name went on the bill. It passed. He gets credit for the bill. It was my legislation. My name's not on it. But we got it done. And sometimes, sometimes you have to find ways to get things done um, by you know, by working around the political obstacles. And that's just an example. And that's something that Senator DeWine, Mike DeWine, and I did together. So I don't, you know, I, I don't think he's a bad person. I disagree with him on a lot of things, tax policy and, and choice issues and women's issues and health care issues. But that doesn't mean he's a bad person. It just means that we've got different ideas about what government ought to do. So one of the themes we've been exploring in this podcast with a lot of our guests is kind of 
um, the, the dynamics between the Republican and the Democratic Party in this state. Um, you're really the sole exception. Everybody points to, oh, Republicans have held control of state office, of the governor's office since 1990, except for four years with Ted Strickland. We've been through all sorts of other kind of, uh, um, you know, internal problems that the Democratic Party has, their, uh, you know, lack of a bench that they have built, um, their inability to really campaign in, you know, your old stomping ground of Southeast Ohio, um, all those kinds of things. So I want to ask, I guess, why, why do you think Republicans have been so dominant, and what do you think Democrats need to do to kind of, you know, rehabilitate themselves? Well, as I said earlier, I think Ohio, uh, although it's a swing state, although neither political party nor any particular candidate can take Ohio for granted, it is a swing state. Having said that, I believe Ohio politically is, is a little right of center. So I, I think in that regard, Republicans start out with a, with a, a very modest advantage. Uh, everything else being equal, no scandal or whatever. Um, I think, as I said, that we've got the strongest statewide ticket that I've seen in my uh, political career this year. Uh, we have very strong candidates for every statewide office. And I think Rich Cordray is a far superior uh, candidate uh, to Mike DeWine. And... Um, Rich will have the capacity to lead us into the future. Uh, I, th I, th I think if you know if Senator DeWine's elected, we'll get just rather stagnant status quo leadership, uh, even perhaps some regressive leadership, especially when it comes to women and women's issues. Um, but uh, Republicans also seem to seem to in most. In most uh, elections, have a financial advantage, um, and uh, there are reasons for that, I guess. Um, um, uh, most of the national huge donors uh, tend to be Republican donors. The Koch brothers are an example. Uh, Mr. Adelson, um, who, who is giving fifty-five million dollars to. Uh, various Republican candidates this election cycle. That story was just in the New York Times yesterday. Um, we, we have some huge donors, but, but not as many. Um, and uh, so we tend to, we, we tend in most cases, um, be at an at a, at a, at a economic disadvantage when it comes to campaign finances. Um, uh, but not always. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I think Rich Cordray is being very competitive at this point um, with Mike DeWine, and I think many of our statewide candidates are being very competitive. Uh, I think Sherrod is, you know, has raised a lot of money and is, is strongly competitive um, in, in, in the Senate race. But that's not always the case. Um, and, you know, if I had had corresponding resources or corresponding uh, outside groups funding my campaign for the Senate that Senator Portman had? Would I have won? I don't know. Probably not. Maybe not. But, um, but 
but the imbalance was so great that it was it was impossible to overcome. So there's a recent political article that quoted uh, Tim Berga, who's leader of the Ohio AFL-CIO, saying of Rich Cordray, Rich looks like a banker, and if you want a motivational speech, he's not your guy. And I think they went on to say he's good on the issues and that kind of stuff. But do you think Eastern Ohio will vote for a guy that kind of fits that bill? Well, you know, I do. And if, and if uh, uh, people in Ohio watched that first debate, uh, they did not see a timid Rich Cordray. He, um, he came out with his opening statement uh, uh, challenging Mike DeWine very directly and aggressively. And I felt like he was, he was the winner of that debate, and he was very aggressive. He was, he, he was not passive at all. Um, but, you know, I'm sick and tired of political rhetoric. Uh, I really am. Uh, I've engaged in it as a as a candidate, um, and, and you know, or, or political oratory is fine and good, but I'm just kind of tired of political rhetoric. I want competency. I, you know, I want serious leadership. I want problem solvers. Um, I want people who will take the responsibility of political leadership seriously, and. Um, and I think the country's hungry for that, especially given, you know, the antics of, of the current president. I, I just think, you know, heated, extreme rhetoric, it may be entertaining, you know, it may be clever, it may be, you know, interesting to listen to, but it doesn't move the country forward and it won't move the state forward. And one of the things that I admire most about Rich Cordray is that he's a, he's a competent guy he has demonstrated that as attorney general. He brought back $2 billion that had been uh, taken out of our pension funds in, inappropriately as the head of the consumers agency in Washington. He took on Wall Street and the big banks and the hedge fund managers and recouped $12 billion for American citizens, many of them Ohioans. So he has demonstrated a quiet competence and I think that's what we need, someone who, who is focused, who is mature, uh, and, you know, political rhetoric is political rhetoric, but political rhetoric does not equal leadership. What constitutes leadership is effectiveness, and, and Rich Cordray is an effective leader. Uh, you're from Appalachia, and you represented that region of the state for a long time. Why do you think that, that the region's been trending Republican? Well, the region, um, the Appalachian region, uh, historically has suffered as a result of um, lack of economic opportunity, lack of technology, lack of infrastructure. Um, uh, it, it's an area that ha has been rich in resources, natural resources, timber, coal, oil, and gas. Um, but the history of Appalachian region have, has been that outside interest groups, wealthy interest groups have come in. They've extracted the resources. They've taken the coal. They've taken the gas and oil. And they've, you know, they've uh, taken the timber. And they've made a lot of money. Um, but in many cases, the people who actually live there have not experienced any long-term benefit. And um, uh, uh, so I, th I, you know, I think they feel appropriately 
that um, they have they have been neglected and overlooked. Um, it, it is it is difficult. It is difficult to to come up with a solution for what to do with small town and rural uh, American communities. Um, as as I said, because of lack of infrastructure, there are, there are areas in Appalachia where, you know, uh, access to to uh, uh, connectivity, broadband technology is not. Uh, accessible. Um, as someone said the other day, I'm sick of our kids having to go to the local McDonald's to do their homework because that's where you can get access to to uh, the, the internet. Um, and, and my experience has shown me that many of the problems that exist in, in poor urban areas are not unlike the problems that exist in in poor Appalachian areas, um, and um, those problems, as I said, are really difficult to to resolve. It's going to take investment and resources, um, and uh, first and foremost, it's go it's going to take a commitment to a high quality educational experience, a post secondary. Uh, affordability um, for young people in these regions to be able to get the resources they need to compete and to be successful. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't fault the people who live in these areas for their feelings because I think they have legitimate feelings uh, of having been neglected. So one thing that we've noticed, um, you know, we talked about it a little earlier, Andrew and myself did when we were offline, is you were talked about as a possible VP, uh, vice presidential mm -hmm. pick in 2008. Um, you know, I think Andrew thinks the uh, calculation was kind of similar to what it is today, you know, swing state of, you know, whatever mm -hmm. party and all that. You've heard about buzz from, you know, Sherrod Brown. You've heard about it with Rob Portman <laughs> multiple times. Um but I mean, is 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 that the only reason that people talk about possible VP picks from Ohio? And you know, they tend to be these like we, we see the political landscape changing, especially for Democrats, where um, you know they want more diversity in their candidates. They want you know women. They yeah. want minorities. They want all of that. Um, the three names that I just threw out there, even the two Democrats, are all you know kind of old white guys. So is that um, you know is that kind of meme going to keep up the you know possible vice presidential pick from Ohio, you know, especially if like say, you know, Richard Cordray does pull it out in November? Yeah, I um I I don't know who the presidential nominee of the Democratic Party is going to be. Uh, I can tell you who my choice is. It's uh, Governor Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington state. He is uh, one of my dearest friends. We shared an apartment for over 10 years in D.C. when we were both in the house. I talked to him, you know, every couple of weeks. Talked to him for a long time last night. Um, he's as decent as anyone I've ever met in my life. Highly ethical, very bright. Um, he, he's a strong environmentalist, perhaps the strongest environmental government that we have, I guess Jerry Brown would be up there as well. Um, he's articulate, smart, honest as the day is long, and he's the kind of person that I think 
you know, the country needs right now. Um, following, um, you know, following uh, president, the presidency of Donald Trump. But um, Ohio is always going to be, I think, uh, well, perhaps not always, but at least for the sh next several election cycles, Ohio is going to be very important when it comes to uh, presidential elections. And uh, people like Sherrod Brown, who has, has a, a high national profile and is a great, great senator, um, I think there'll always be speculation about him and, and about Rob Portman. Uh, Rob Portman is the classic uh, Republican uh, office holder. He is, he's not a flamethrower, not a bomb thrower, but he's always consistent with, uh, with Republican economic principles. And, and so I think that makes him attractive as a possible uh, uh, vice presidential candidate. But as you say, they're both white men. And uh, uh, probably if the nominee of our party is not a minority, then I would assume the vice presidential, their vice presidential pick, would would likely be um, a member of uh, of one of the minority communities, and so that would make it very difficult. So maybe they should run for president instead of vice president. Um, I'm getting curious now that uh, you know you said Jay Inslee is your your kind of pick for president. Does that mean you don't think that? Sherrod Brown is running in 2020, or is that just kind of who you're? Well, I, I haven't heard anything uh, from Sherrod that, that would that would indicate that that's the case. If if he does become a candidate, that would change the equation. Obviously, um, we go way back and have been friends for many, many, many years. Is that all you want to say on that? <laughs> Yeah, um, I think he's a great senator. I think he's one of the best senators in the entire country. I think he loves being senator. Um, I think he serves Ohio exceptionally well, and that's why I think, you know, he's such in such a strong position for reelection. Um, people, uh, people all over Ohio appreciate Sherrod. Uh, people in Appalachia do. I can tell you that because they feel like he's a fighter for them. So the, the one question we wanted to make sure that we asked, you know, before, you know, before you left is, and so this is on everyone's mind, uh, how do you feel about your decision to appear in 2010 in the song for LeBron James, uh, yeah. Please Stay LeBron, and with Dick, Dick Goddard and other Cleveland celebrities and Ohio yeah. celebrities? Please stay LeBron, we really need you. No bigger heart is going to love you half as much as we do. Please stay, LeBron. We really need you. <laughs> LeBron James is a remarkable person. Um, I was happy to be in that uh, appeal. Um, and uh, I'm glad he came back to Cleveland. Uh, and uh, I, I, I admire him so much. Um, and it seems uh, th that, that um, as he ages... He becomes um, even more uh, of a role model uh, or people that we would want to have as a role model. Let me tell you a little story about LeBron. You know, when I, when I was governor, there was this big banner hanging on the side of the building with his 
his image in it, and um, it's a huge banner. And uh, the Federal Highway Administration had decided that it had to come down because it it was too close to an interstate, or some for some reason they were saying it had to come down. And being the political animal that I am, I came to Cleveland and I stood across from that banner and I looked at it and I said, that's not advertising, that's art and it's staying put. And um, I got a really nice letter from LeBron thanking me for that and saying, you know, if I can ever do anything to be helpful to you, uh, let me know. I've never asked him except um, I, I did have the son of, of, of my best friend was, was a young man in his 20s that um, had um, terminal uh, melanoma from Florida and he came to visit me and we went to a Cavs game and uh, LeBron made himself available afterwards to, to spend some time with him and that was really thoughtful thing. LeBron James is an exceptional human being and uh, this region has every reason to be proud of him. So, so looking back on your decision to participate in that song, do you feel like it was a factor in his decision to ultimately leave the county? <laughs> you think my singing forced him out? <laughs> I'm asking you, do you think? Do you think? No, I, I hope he uh, interpreted that uh, in the spirit in which it was meant. We were, as a community, we were trying to express to him our appreciation and admiration for him. I think you accomplished that. I, I like the song personally. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, and it was fun to do. Yeah. All right, Governor Strickland, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate having you on the show. Well, thank you guys for giving me a chance to talk to your listeners. And uh, if you're out there and you're listening to me, everything I said, you ought to take to heart. <laughs> <laughs>